With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is your host, Jean McCarthy, and I'm here today with a guest that I think you will find as fascinating as I do. But first, let me ask you, are you authentic? Are you really being true to yourself? Do you ever feel stuck in a life that looks good on the outside but feels all wrong for you on the inside? Well, today's guest has a story that is sure to inspire you to honor your truth and stand in your power. Now, I met Lisa Schmidt just a few days ago already, and um, it seemed that she brought a breeze into the room with her. She's got funky hair and tattoos, and she's wearing a cool hat, and she said, Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm the sober hipster. And I was like, Yes, you definitely are. (laughs) Tell me more. And uh, now she's here to tell you more. So hello, Lisa, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I I know that um, we have lots to talk about today, and um, I'm really I've, I've read your story on your website, which is soberhipster.com, and I know you're going to get into more of it today. And then we're going to talk about the project, the Sober Hipster, as well, because you've got a special gift for our listeners, a special coupon for them. So we'll make sure we talk about all of those things. But before we do, I just want you to start us off by sort of telling us about your story and about your relationship with alcohol that brought you to where you are today. Okay. Um, Well, my relationship started uh, when I was 13. Um, My parents divorced when I was 10. uh, And I had grown up to that point in West Virginia. And we moved to Texas. Um, And just to give a little bit of context, my childhood, um, I grew up in a very uh, abusive Uh, home with an alcoholic father. Um, So uh, from a very early age, um, the, what the world saw of family on the outside was very different from what went on inside the home. Um, So my parents divorced. We moved from West Virginia to Texas, Um, just my mom. And I have a younger brother, five years younger than me. And um, we didn't know anyone. We had uh, no family, no friends. Uh, My mom literally packed up. uh, She had a little Chevy Chevette and a very small car, hatchback, two-door. And uh, she packed us in that car with her sewing machine and uh, just a few clothes. 
and we moved to Texas. Um, what I didn't know at the time is that she had met uh, someone, and uh, he was working out of Lake Charles, Louisiana. And so we settled in a town just across the Texas-Louisiana border. And uh, turns out that he uh, was also uh, abusive. And uh, but this time it didn't take ten years uh, for her to to kick him out. And so he was gone pretty quickly, and we were left, the three of us, uh, in Texas. Um, Also going on, you know, there was typical typical stuff that I was dealing with, you know, being in a new place. Um, And then uh, just the relationship with my father has always been a very strained. uh, He's been very, he was very absent um, and was not, um, was just not great. Didn't pay my mom child support. So uh, not only were we in Texas without family or friends, my my mom started working two jobs uh, just to provide for my brother and I, which meant that we saw her very little. And we were shuffled from daycare center to babysitter. Um, and then about the time I was 12 or 13, I became the caregiver for my brother. Um and, you know, about that time I started middle school, um, and the pressures started uh, kind of mounting as far as, you know, at that age, there's the pressure of, you know, what, who's your boyfriend? You know, you, you, girls and guys and, and having those relationships and writing boys' names on your folder and drawing cute hearts around it and, you know, um, there was, a, there was just a lot of pressure towards that. And, uh, and again, things with my dad, um, I, was, I was made to go and spend the summer with him. Um, and when I would go for those summer visits, they were just as um, toxic as they had been when he was with, he had remarried and, um, but his life with her continued to be what I was accustomed to, which was a lot of drinking and drugs and abuse. And, um, and I had a front row seat to it. Um, so I started, uh, I started using alcohol. I, I, don't, I don't think I thought of it as a relationship. Um, it, was, it was escape. It was the only thing that... Um, could help me uh, forget about, uh, you know, not having a relationship with him and his absence, um, a mom who wasn't home a lot, um, being in this role of of taking care of a younger brother, um, and then struggling with my my own identity. I had known um, since I was in the second grade that I was gay. And um, had hidden that. That had been my secret. Um, And it would be a secret that I would carry with me for for a very long time. Um, So I felt very different um, for a lot of reasons, Um, that being a big one. But but even the divorce, you know, in 1980, um, a lot of my friends, it's not like it is today. I didn't have friends where they had divorced parents. Um, It was still still kind of new. 
Um, and, and so there was, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of feeling different, a lot of feeling on the outside. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of fell into, you know, it started mild, um, with wine coolers or, you know, Booms Hill, Booms Farm wine, um, really cheap stuff. And, and then, you know, I, I did what most kids my age would do. You know, you steal from your, your parents or whatever when they're not around and replace it with water so they, you know, vodka or rum so they don't know that it's missing. Um, peppermint schnapps, you know, anything like that. Um, and then I also started smoking weed. And, uh, again, at that time in the early 80s, um, ecstasy and stuff like that was really popular, uh, speed. And uh, so I started doing all of that. But at the same time, on the, on the outside, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't know any of that. I was um, high achieving, um, good grades in school. I was, uh, I was on the basketball team. Um, my freshman year, I was, I was already playing varsity. I was just, I excelled at everything. And that's not to be egotistical, um, it's just to say that I learned very early on how to function um, at a high level and do these things to do drugs and, and, and drink um, without, without it being uh, something that took away from, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't your, oh, her grades are slipping and, um, or anything like that. I was able to still maintain my life at that level um, while doing all this. Um, I was also struggling with, uh, in high school, middle school and high school, I struggled a lot with depression. Um, again, uh, thinking that it was just, you know, because I felt so different, um, I would later learn that there was more behind that. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I drank uh, pretty consistently through middle school, high school, uh, right into college, and um, it wasn't until uh, I got pregnant with my first child that I actually, the only two times other than my sobriety now that I have not drank have been the two times that I've been pregnant. Um, That's my mom phoning me. Wanna... <laughs> Can you hear the phone ringing? I told I you there's always something on this show. <laughs> Love you, Mom. I'll call you back. Oh, there goes the answering machine. Now you're going to get to hear her message. <laughs> nice. Are you hearing the whole thing? I am. <laughs> oh, God. Poor mom. <laughs> so she'll probably call back again now, too. Bless her heart. Okay. Um, so that's a whole other show, hanging up on our mothers. Right. Uh, so, sorry, Mom. Love you. Um, and you know I won't edit that, right? Because we just roll with whatever happens here. So Sounds good. Let's just dig back into what you were talking about there. So tell me a little bit about, like, you started using and, and drinking at quite a young age. Was that in more of, like, a party scenario? Like, did it up your social game? Like, were you good with friends? Were you kind of that shape-shifting, codependent kind of kid who could – secure yourself would, wherever you were at or were you drinking and using alone? Uh, both. So I was, um, I guess you would call me the kid that could fit in with all of the groups. 
Um, I was mm-hmm. able to fit in with popular kids, with um, with the jocks, with, you know, I, I could be friends with just about anybody, um, including the druggies. You know, I just, I I guess I just had a way of, of fitting in with, with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I definitely, I was, uh, I was definitely the, the girl that liked to party on the weekends, you know, it was definitely all about get to the weekend and who was having a party. Um, living really close to Louisiana, the drinking age over there was 18. And so um, my friends and I, we all had fake IDs. And we could, in a half an hour, be in Louisiana driving through. Uh, they had actual places you could drive through and get mixed drinks. And uh, and then they had a teen <laughs> club. Really, um, yeah, I mean, and then there was a club that we could go to, um, and you could get in if you were 18 and up, and you could drink. Um, so it's been a lot of weekends, um, you know, crossing the border and drinking and dancing and uh, and partying. But at the same time, I was that person who was doing it alone, um, who was uh, – smoking weed in her car on the way to school or, you know, buying drugs in the hallway and going to the bathroom and, you know, taking a couple of pills while I was in school. Um, So it was, it was a mixture um, of both. Uh, Did you feel like a fraud as a a young person or did you feel like you were handling it? Yeah. I don't, I don't think I felt like a fraud. Um, I don't think I, I don't feel like I was deceiving anybody. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I felt, I felt just, you know, in some ways like a normal teenager experimenting and and that sort of thing. Um, It was definitely, I felt like I couldn't relax and be fun without it. Um, I I needed it. I needed it to relax. Um, You know, I I often said, you know, I can't dance unless I'm drinking. Um, Um, Yeah. You know, those things. Um, I didn't think I was. And the the world affirms that, right? Like the world is like, woo, yeah. Sure. (laughs) You're right. So tell me about when it shifted for you. When did it start to shift into being, what were the signs that, that, that this relationship or that just using this casually and using it to sort of be happy and blend in and have fun, when did that start to feel more like a burden, more like a, something wasn't right about that? Um, it was probably in high school. Um, I had to have my feet operated on and um, both of them at the same time. And I missed the last three years of my freshman year. I was, uh, had a tutor. I was homebound and, uh, I discovered, um, Percocet, Percodan, um, mm. pain. And, uh, because of the surgery and, and that sort of thing, I had a, a couple of refills, you know, on that prescription. And I learned, um, just how good that felt, um, as far as numbing other pain and, and escaping. Um, and I, and, you know, and that, that didn't really change um, as as things happened in my life. Um, I learned how to use prescription drugs. I I've never um, I've never been one. I, I thank God I was too afraid to ever do something like 
um, heroin or cocaine. I've always, um, I've always stuck to opiates. You know, I like the oxycodone, the hydrocodone, the the painkillers, um, and and alcohol. Um, so in some ways, I feel fortunate if if that's a something to be thankful for that I that I never really went any harder than that. Um, but I guess you know. So there came a point in my in my high school days where um, my the summer before my senior year, uh, my brother was kind of out of control and my mom couldn't handle him, so she sent him to live with my dad in Florida, and thought that he would be better you know better equipped to handle him the whole father influence, um, and so I finished my senior year in Texas. And then we moved to Florida. So I was 18, and it was, it was another big move. And we got to Florida, and I got enrolled in college and got a job. And um, my mom ended up meeting someone. Um, and they very quickly, uh, I guess you could say, fell in love. And he had three small children. And uh, they decided to get married. And... The, the long and the short of it is there really wasn't a place for me in that family. Mm. Um, and so I, uh, I wasn't going to live with my dad. Um, so I started living with friends and um, kind of following in the footsteps, I met a guy. And again, at this point, you know, I'm 18 and I'm uh, not out to anyone. I have, I've still kept my secret. I've had crushes through high school and, um, you know, all of that and haven't told anyone uh, that I'm gay. And I meet this typical, I guess you could say typical bad boy, um, dark hair, gorgeous blue eyes, just really, um, really nice looking and the, the bad reputation to go with it. And he liked to party. And um, started hanging out with him and needed somewhere to belong. And, but somewhere I still had my values and, and I guess my morals. And uh, I said, well, we can't just live together. We would have to get married. And uh, so, so we did. Um, and I guess I should probably, so the night before we got married, um, and it was a very impromptu, not well-planned kind of thing. Uh, I had a friend that was going to marry us. Uh, my dad called me and said, I want you to, I want you to come over here. And I, I want to talk to you before you do this. And so I went, and he was plastered, um, which was very typical. And he tried to, uh, he tried to tell me not to, to marry the, the guy. And I wasn't hearing it, you know, and he had all these papers on his dining room table. And he's like, you know, I've checked this guy out. He's bad news. You don't, I, you know, I don't want any part of this. I won't be there tomorrow if you do this. Uh, And he was the last person in my life at that point that I was going to listen to. He hadn't Hmm. been there. He had been horrible, you know, to my mom. So um, the next day I go through with it. And uh, after the wedding that night, I don't remember a whole lot. 
um, I'm pretty sure he slipped something to me um, because I woke up the next morning, passed out on the floor in our new apartment. And it was just That's romantic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, and it, and it just got worse from there. Um, six weeks into the marriage, um, he raped me oh. and, uh, and there was, you know, there was nothing I could do. Um, so I got up the next morning and locked myself in the bathroom, waited for him to leave for work. And when he left, I called my mom and she called my stepmom and they got a U-Haul. And while he was at work that day, we loaded up all of my stuff and I left. Um, and the next day, two days after the rape, I had a family member who said, um, you know, you just, you just got to pick up and, and just keep going from here. You just got to put it behind you and move on. And that's exactly what I did as I, as I just, I stuffed it. Um, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, so I was living with my mom and he actually started stalking me, uh, would show up at my college campus, um, run me off the road, uh, you know, different things like that. Um, so the point that I, where I'm trying to go is I ended up having to move in with my father for my safety and my protection. Um, during How that did that time conversation that I was, go, Lisa, having to <laughs> admit that he was right? And um, there was, was that hard to do? Was, that, was there some reconciliation there was never, there? There was uh. never a conversation. Uh, I mean, in my family, you don't talk about feelings. You don't talk about anything. So there was no – I wasn't even involved in the discussion of I was moving in there. It was a discussion that he had with my mom. Here I am you know, 18, and they had the discussion, and it was decided, you know, that this is what I was going to do. Um, and and so I found myself living with the last person that I wanted to live with. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, like, and supposedly, you know, I'm supposed to just go through life as if nothing's happened. Um, so I'm living with him. Uh, all of this happened... Um, on a Tuesday night, on Wednesday I moved out. On Thursday I took the day off at, and stayed home. On Friday I went out and found a new job um, because I was putting myself through college. And on that day I met a guy at the place where I would start working the following Monday. Um, and got into a relationship with him very quickly. Um, he would become the person that I would marry and spend almost 20 years with. Um, so, so yeah, so, I mean, um, I was using during, you know, to cope with all of that, I was, I was drinking and continuing to take prescription painkillers. You know, that, that pattern continued of not talking about, of keeping secrets. You know, now I... I had the secret of knowing that I was different, knowing that I was gay and not telling. Now I had the secret of, and the shame of keeping the secret that I had been raped. 
Um, So. So tell me about the decision to marry, not once but twice. Were you hoping that you would keep that secret forever, that you could just sort of deny yourself um, your truth? Or, like, what was your thinking going into those relationships? Are you of the generation, like a lot of us were, that there needs to be a man to take care of you? Or, what? like, what was your thinking in that? I don't think it was that I needed a man to take care of me. Um, I think it was wanting to be accepted and wanting to belong. And I very much wanted to have a family. Um, so when I started dating uh, the guy that would be, that would become my husband, um, I got pregnant before we got married. And so when I found out I was pregnant, I knew there, for me, the only choice was to have the baby. And he was of the same mindset. So we didn't have to struggle through any difference of opinion there. Um, He had come from a divorced home just like I had. So there was this sense of I can, I can finally, I can, I can have maybe a normal family. Like he was, he's a great guy. I'm pregnant. We can have this child. We can have this family and maybe I'll change. Um, you know, maybe becoming a mom will change me. Maybe being married to a good guy, maybe it'll change me. Um, and that would be a that would be a theme that would reoccur as well um, going forward. Would you say too that as a child of an alcoholic, I think one thing I've heard many times on this show is that. Um, in those circumstances, you you learn to not put yourself first. You learn to do without, do what you need to do to get by, and you sort of start to learn to disregard your own needs in a way. And do you think that was happening for you? Like, were you just sort of not thinking about it a lot because you're so externally focused on others to some degree? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think um, one of the hard things, you know, I have so much so much admiration for my mom and for how hard she worked to take care, you know, to raise my brother and I and to work two jobs and all of that. But from my, from my side of it, I was always concerned with her feelings. You know, I would stay home um, and not go out with friends sometimes because I wanted, I didn't want to leave her alone. Um, in a lot of ways, I felt like a parent to my mom growing up, um, mm-hmm. and 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 I had to put her feelings and her needs above my own. Um, so yeah, and and then you know what is motherhood? But you know you go into that, and it does become about your your children and and their needs. Um, so yeah, I was. I, I, does that answer your question? Yeah. It does. Yeah. And then, so tell me about these next 20 years. Did you just continue sort of maintaining, you know, a numbness with alcohol and booze to sort of just get by? Or what did the next 20 years look like? And tell me about the life that you built during those, during those years. Um, 
you know, I early on, I think I was really hopeful that I could create and build that life, you know, that family that I so desperately wanted. Um, four years after having my daughter, I got pregnant with my son. Um, and when he was about, he wasn't even a year yet. He was maybe eight or nine months. Um, my husband came home from work and announced that he didn't know if he loved me anymore. And it came as a, I I mean, it it devastated me. I mean, it was, if you can imagine, I was literally in the kitchen making dinner and he walked in and that, that was what he led with. I I don't know if I love you anymore. And, uh, and it, and it, yeah, I mean, it was, it was devastating. Um, and it would also be just uh, a short time after that that I would become suicidal for the first time. Um, and I would spend uh, I would spend uh, 72 hours in a in a men- mental facility. I was Baker acted. Um, I call it being tricked. I had a I had a therapist that worked with him, and they kind of. Uh, I didn't realize what was happening and and then realized that the, the place that we were going to see, if they could help me, uh, I, I wasn't going to be leaving for 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, the ideal that it was uh, going to be the perfect family uh, scenario faded very quickly. Um, but we didn't stop trying. Uh, I had gone to, I guess I should back up. So I went to college uh, to become a paralegal. I was working as a paralegal. And um, about nine years into my career and while the kids were were young, I kind of got what I thought was my dream job working in downtown Orlando for one of the largest firms. Um, And I was really unhappy. Uh, And so... At that point, we had we had been attending church, um, and I had gotten involved, you know, really involved in church and particularly in youth ministry. And I decided that I was going to leave my career as a paralegal, and I was going to go into doing ministry full time. And so I did. I uh, started out uh, as an assistant to the youth director. And and then uh, I became the interim youth director, and then eventually I was hired as the, the student director over fifth through twelfth grade and some college ministries, and I even started going to seminary. And I guess I say all that to say again, I thought uh, maybe this would be the thing, you know, maybe if I do this right, if I if I'm if I'm good, if I'm doing God's work, if I'm in the church, I'm raising my kids in the church, if I go to seminary, maybe this, this will, these will be the things that will change me. Um, mm-hmm. I'll find the answer that I've been looking for all my life. Um, Was there any part of you that entertained the idea that maybe you didn't need changing at that point, that you were 
accepted and loved and worthy just as you were? Or did no. that come later? No, that wasn't. No, absolutely. You were, you were so planning I, that. Um, no, my husband and I, uh, being in that Christian environment, um, we were part of a small group and had other couples for friends. And uh, so we were approached um, about doing Christian counseling. You know, that was, we needed to do Christian counseling. So we started doing Christian counseling and uh, the Christian counselor referred me to Exodus, um, which for, if people don't know what Exodus, they don't exist any longer, but it was about uh, it's conversion therapy um, uh. for people who believe that you can, um, the saying, pray the gay away or, um, or that kind of thing. So I was, I was made to go to Exodus International. They had an office um, and stuff in Orlando. And I had to watch films and read literature and uh, go through a, you know, a course of reparative therapy um, to, to, change, to try to change me, you know, to tell me how sinful and what an abomination I was and um, that I could change, that this was a choice, that I could, I could overcome this sin or I could live with it and not act on it. So I'm guessing that through the course of that couples counseling, you were vulnerable for the first time and, and shared like your true identity. Is that like, is that how that came about? The first time you it, shared it with someone that it that that uh, that they directed you to to try to change rather than to try to accept. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh. it, it was that way with my husband though too. I mean, when mm-hmm. so I didn't just come out to the counselor first. I did come out to him first. Um, I'll never forget. Um, we were going to a, an Orlando Magic basketball game, standing outside the arena. And I found the courage to tell him, this is who I am. And, you know, I've known this. And it was one of the hardest conversations I've ever had with him. But it was the beginning of everything else that followed, which was Mm -hmm. the Christian counseling. Um, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm not here to say that I did this all right. Um, you know, in my, in my marriage with him, um, I did have extramarital relationships with women. Um, what I didn't know is that he was having his own. Uh, he was a mm-hmm. traveling businessman. And so um, later I would find out that he had been having these, these relationships while he was on the road. Um, so he was aware Um, but I think, I think there was a denial, you know, um, I mean, it was, it was very complicated to say the least. I mean, it, it really, it truly was. Um, but I think, I think at that point I was so involved in the church and in ministry and going to, you know, I, I wanted to believe that I could change. 
the last thing that I wanted, at that point, I didn't believe God could love me as I was. So, you know, the last thing I wanted to, for everything that people were telling me to come true, that, you know, that I was going to go to hell, that, you know, um, I mean, you see it all the time, you know, Um, God hates fags and, you know, there, there was all of that. Um, there was no one in my Christian uh, community where I could, that was, it was safe to tell. Um, so, yes, the people that knew um, were part of, okay, what can we do to change it? What can we do to change you? What can we do to change this? So in that Christian counseling setting, it was you'll have no contact with her any longer. Um, you know, you'll do, you know, you'll do these things and you'll go through this therapy and you'll attend this conference, you know, Exodus even would hold conferences, you know, and you will learn how not to be gay. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so I guess the pivotal, I guess the pivotal point in my journey came in 2008, um, I was leading a mission team of adults and youth on a trip to Cairo, Egypt. And I was the last person that I thought should be leading this trip. But um, I was on staff, and it was kind of just put before me that this is what I was going to do. And um, my entire family was also going on the trip. And uh, so it was in July of 2008 went to Cairo, and uh, the first day we're there, I I have written in my journal that I don't know why I'm here. You know, God, I need to to understand what what am I doing here? Why have you brought me here? Um, And just really kind of crying out, Um, of course, and all of this other stuff is going on in the background, and and I'm thinking, you know, this just isn't, it's just not making sense to me. how can God use somebody like me? I'm at this point now I am living a double life. You know, people think I'm one person. I feel like two people. Um, Mm -hmm. And three days into that trip, we had been at a, at a school that that was like a, like a community center or a YMCA, what you would think of here in the States. It was along those lines, lots of kids. We were doing children's ministry but they had an underground discipleship school where they were teaching the Bible because, of course, you can't just openly teach the Bible um, over in Egypt. And um, so we've been there all day. We're getting ready to leave. And this young girl, um, probably 20, young college-age girl, walks up to me and asks if she can speak to me. And I said, sure, you know, that we could talk. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen her all day. We've been there all day. And she looked at me and she said, um, I loved you from the first moment I saw you. And I thought, okay, like it was a really weird thing to say to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went over to a table and I sat down and she said, God led me to you. And I just want you to know I love you. And in that moment, I knew I had had, I knew why I was there. And, you know, the way I describe it now is it took 
it took going to a foreign land and it took a complete stranger for God to, to let me know how much he loved me. Mm. And uh, that was really, that was, uh, so that was the beginning point of starting to live authentic. I came back from, I came back from that trip and came out to my best friend um, who would also have been on the trip with me. Uh, she was also a Christian and, and actually was in music ministry. What I didn't know is that she was also gay. So we ended up having this, um, this, this beautiful thing happen where we came out to each other. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, so my husband and I separated. Um, and then we started there was a lot of pressure coming from the church because I was on staff at this point. I was the uh, director of student ministries, you know, and I was going, I was separated from my husband and I was going to be divorced. Like, uh, it didn't fit the mold. It didn't fit, yeah. And, and, And my senior pastor was not, not happy at all about it. Um, he and I would get back together for a short time um, before actually splitting. Um, and things got really ugly um, within the church. Uh, I showed up to work one day and was told that I was the agenda for a staff meeting, uh, the only thing on the agenda, and that I needed to tell everyone uh, that I was getting a divorce. And so I had to do that. And then uh, the senior pastor kept pushing for a reason. He wanted to know what the grounds were for the divorce and was really pushing me into a corner. And like I said, you know, I was, I was married to a wonderful man and uh, he saw what was happening and he said, you tell them that it's because your husband was unfaithful and that's all they need to know. Yeah. And So initially, that's what we did. And so then I had to prepare a letter to send out to parents, letting them know that, you know, I was going to be a divorce. Um, and, And so there was this period of time where here I was finally believing that God really loved me for who I was and everything in the church was not loving you know, um, mm-hmm. and and it became so painful to be a part of something, you know, to, it was so conflicting because here I, I was on my own. I was reading and studying, and I was, for the first time, receiving that love uh, from God and having to go to a church every day and do a job and a ministry that, you know, was ready to crucify me for getting a divorce. Um, all that to say that it didn't take very much, take very long until I decided to resign. Um, and just let me pause you for a minute and ask, too, like, what did your drinking look like at this time? Were you, you were carrying a heavy, heavy load. Was alcohol and drugs something that helped you cope through this time? Or Absolutely. Yeah. And again, you know, again, I was, I was able to hide it. Um, 
I was able to still function and do, you know, what I needed to do. I, I could separate, you know, I could, I could separate it. I would, I would do my job and then in away from that, you know, usually at home, um, I numbed, you know, I numbed all of it with, with the drugs and the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so just resigned. one more secret to carry, right? Just one more, <laughs> one but more rock in the bag. Yeah. But, but not for much longer. I got to the point where I, I just couldn't do it. Um, even, even when, um, even when I asked my husband for a divorce, um, we sat down with both of the kids and they just didn't hear that we were getting a divorce. I came out to them at the same time. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to understand that it wasn't just about, you know, we're not getting along or whatever, but it was because of who I am. Um, so they were told from the very beginning of of the divorce proceedings that that's, that, that was part of the story. Um, I, I ended up resigning, leaving the church, and uh, word got out pretty quickly um, not by my own doing, um, that there was more to the divorce and the reason for the divorce. And, um, again, because of being in a relationship with someone and that getting out. Um, so yeah, so people found out that I was gay and I went from having a church, a ministry, um, kids and youth, their families and everything to lose, really losing everything. I mean, I, my job, um, friends, family, um, all of it just kind of was gone uh, almost overnight. People that I thought were friends, people that I thought, you know, um, were, were like family um it was it was over yeah. um, and you know in two thousand and ten uh that would even be true with my dad i he was the last person you know I came out, I started living my truth um and in two thousand and ten he was the last person that I hadn't told, and I wrote a letter um and I heard back from my stepmom, uh, his wife, but I didn't really hear from him. So I went over to his house to tell him directly. And uh, I was kicked out of his house. I was told, you know, get out of my house, you faggot. And that was almost seven years ago. We haven't, I haven't seen or spoken to him since. Oh. Now, in some ways, did this period of isolation feel familiar, having gone through other times in your life where everything, the life that you had around you disappeared and you had to start over again and were you starting to feel pretty weary of that or did it feel familiar or like, what did you do from there? What happened next? Uh, No, it it didn't feel familiar at all. Um, You know, I went from living with a family to living alone. My son went to live with my husband um, my daughter moved out. Um, 
I had to stay in the house that we shared for a year, and then I moved into um, my own place. I got an apartment. Um, and honestly, it, it, it all came crumbling down in 2013. Um, I, I got to a place where I found myself in a, in a familiar pattern again of having feelings for someone that I shouldn't um, because while I had accepted that God could love me and I had come out, I hadn't fully accepted myself and learned how to love me for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so in 2013, um, I had an, uh, a situation where I, I felt like things were headed in a direction that, that wasn't good. And I, uh, I had a full blown anxiety panic attack at work. And, uh, I left work and drove to my apartment in Orlando and started drinking and taking at that point, I had anxiety medications um, because I was in therapy for, years I had I had started therapy with a, a counselor specializing a therapist specializing in LGBT issues um, and so I had prescriptions for anxiety and different things and um, I took everything I had I drank everything that was in my apartment um, and I ended up with you know um, paramedics and fire and police officers in my apartment um, and they were trying, and I had friends, and they were trying to get me um, Baker acted, and I knew what was happening. And so I was able to avoid it and, and to tell them that I was fine, I was fine, uh, and downplay how much I had taken and that sort of thing. And um, that night, I, after I got everyone out of the apartment, I laid down on my bed and looked up at the ceiling and pretty much expected not to wake up the next morning. Um, I was, I was ready to die. Uh, but I woke up and, uh, and I guess it was at that point where I knew something had to change. I, I, it was my, it was my low point. You know, they, uh, they're saying that, you know, you have to hit your bottom and, and that sort of thing. I think for me, that was it. Um, and so uh, I worked with my therapist, and he found an amazing uh, treatment center in Ocala, Florida. And um, I got into an intensive outpatient program. Um, and I started, I started that program living in Orlando and commuting an hour and a half each way. Um, but it only took a couple of weeks of doing that, and it wasn't good. I, I, I was doing all this work during the day in this program and then going home to an empty apartment. Mm-hmm. I, had no, I had no accountability. I had no one there, um, and I was digging up all of this stuff in therapy and um, a couple weeks into it 
I, well, and I, I guess I should say too, when I went, when I agreed to go to the intensive outpatient program, uh, as silly as this may sound, I kind of had it in my head that the drinking and the drugs were going to go with me. Like, okay, I'm ready to deal with all of this stuff. I'm ready. I'm ready to talk about the abuse I grew up around my, you know, in my childhood. I'm ready to talk about being raped because I've never talked about it. I'm ready to deal with this secret of knowing that I was gay since second grade and trying to live a straight life and, and feeling like I failed at that and, and that I destroyed my family in the process. And, you know, I was ready to deal with all of these things and I get there and they tell me, Oh, and you have to, you can't drink and you can't use drugs, (laughs) but I need those. (laughs) Right. Like I have this, all planned you don't understand like I talk about this stuff but then I'm gonna numb I'm gonna numb all of that when I go when I go home um and it's okay I've got it all figured out I can keep (laughs) can keep going right but but honestly and here I mean it's the truth I did not see anything wrong with that like I it was the first time I had been confronted with you have a problem with with using alcohol this way. And I had rebelled against being called an alcoholic because I knew my dad was. Um, and so I didn't want that label. And I'm in these, these group therapy and, and they're, you know, there's part of it's education and part of it is, you know, talking in a group and there's all, and I'm like, God, this is the last thing I want to be. Um, but when I, so a couple weeks into it, I split and I drank and um, I had an amazing therapist, and she, and because I had been suicidal, I was given the choice: either I can move into their sober living facility and continue the program, but also live in that supervised, controlled environment, or they would have to send me to more of a mental institution type place. And because of my previous experience with that and how horrific that was. I said, okay, you know, I'll do this. Um, so November 14th, 2013 uh, is my sober date. And I would, uh, I would stay in that facility and in that program until March of 2014. So that's, sorry, four months? Yeah, yeah, I was... Yeah. Um, So, uh, and that was, you know, five days a week, uh, nine to like nine to three 30 every day. Um, as part of that program, I was introduced to AA. We had to attend either an AA or an NA meeting every day. Um, there was no, there was no choice in that. We couldn't say, well, the 12 steps aren't for me. Um, that sort of, I mean, it was a mandatory uh, so for those four months, I went to, you know, I basically went to an NA or an AA meeting every day. Um, so tell me, does your recovery now include a relationship with higher power? Given your absolutely. past with the church, um, you're able to separate that, you know, church is the man-made thing that's really fallible, but God is not, right? So that I'm glad yeah, you I- You've hung on to I that. A, so my, 
my spirituality, my faith, my relationship with my power, my higher power, who I choose to call God, um, has only strengthened since coming out and becoming authentic, um, which is really hard for people to understand. You know, so so many people think you have to be either gay, you can be gay, or you can be Christian. You can't be and. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, what I have left behind is uh, I'm not part of a church. I have, uh, you know, yeah, I, you know, that's still an area where um, I have a really hard time with church and mm-hmm. organized religion. And um, so I, I find my way to connect, um, you know, for, for a long time, the rooms of AA um, were my, you know, where I found community. I mean, church isn't a building. It's a people, you know, who, who mm-hmm. share a set of beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I found, I found common beliefs. I found people who, when I sat in the room, I felt like one of, you know, and um, so that kind of, you know, I don't want to say that became my church, but definitely became um authentic community. So tell me what your life looks like today. You know, it, it, we're short on time now. It's been almost an hour already. I told you this would go by so fast. <laughs> it always goes by too fast. Um, yeah. But tell me where you're at today. What does life look like for you today? Um, life, is, life is really good. Um, three and a half years sober and clean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, after... A year of being clean and sober, I met my wife, or met the person who is now my wife. Um, uh, We got married in January of 2016, so we've been married a little over a year now. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And uh, so that's really good. Um, I'm back working as a paralegal in a corporate corporate, uh, setting as far as a a law firm um, doing uh, that work, but I've just started uh, a side business um, called the Sober Hipster uh, because I believe that um, what I've always believed I've always I've always wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, I thought that my path was going to be in youth ministry, making that difference. That I would do. I have I've done a lot of mission trips in addition to the one that I mentioned to Cairo. Um, I've done lots and lots of mission work and community work, and um, I thought that that was going to be the path, but I do believe that um, that my path is now my path, and I'm meant to share my journey with other women um, in recovery, um, and it's like, you know, I think she recovers is the one that has coined the phrase, we're all recovering from something Mm-hmm. And, you know, so wrapped up in this, you know, I've, I, I've experienced, you know, everything from the, the struggling with sexual identity to the alcohol and drug abuse. I've, you know, been involved in self-harm. I've been suicidal. I've, um, you know, I, I feel like I have a lot of uh, experience in my life, in my story with that and, I feel like I have a responsibility um, to 
to share it now um, and to tell my story so that other women maybe who are struggling and suffering in silence and in fear and afraid of judgment and shame and, and everything that maybe they won't be so afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's the power, right? The power of sharing our stories. I mean, that's what we're all about here is that um, we are, the details aren't the same, but the truth behind it is the same. And we hear ourselves and each other all the time. Tell me more about the Sober Hipster. What's happening over there? Uh, so the SoberHipster.com, you have a really cool offering um, as, a, as a healing tool for women. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, when I was going through my, my uh, therapy, um, there was a lot that had happened that I couldn't put words to. And so uh, every Friday we would do art therapy. And at first I was confused by the terminology of art therapy. Like I'm, I'm, I never thought of myself as an artist and, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this kind of therapy um, but that's not really what it was about. It was about the creative process of of making art and how it has this inherent healing power. And um, and then it gives it gives words to feelings and thoughts that you haven't been able to put to words. And so, anyway, over the course of those that time in therapy, um, I just I developed a real love for art therapy. And so I've created something called the story box. And I like to think of it as um, art therapy in a box delivered to your doorstep um, that you can do in your home. Um, And it's something that I wish, you know, when I left therapy and and had to go back to the real world, as they say, um, it's something that I wish would have existed um, mm-hmm. Because I was still looking for those projects, you know, I was I was missing Fridays, um, and so that's really that's really kind of what I've created. I, I've created something that I wish existed, um, and it's and it's come it comes out of my own experience in art therapy, and I think it has. Um, I don't know. It's just, I think it's a, a really universal way of processing. You know, it can be a recovery tool and not just recovery from, like, it can be anything, not just drinking, not just drugs, not, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any healing in your life. So what's it? So the story box can be ordered from the soberhipster.com. And what. What is in that box? What, how, how does it work? So, what do they get? So they get a journal, um, a custom journal. There's uh, some art supplies and, to get you started. It's not everything you'll need, but it's, it's some good starting point. Um, and then there's what, what's called story cards. There's 16 different um, custom-designed uh, art therapy experiences that um, that you can do. Um, they're guided so that it takes away the, you know, where do I start? How do I do this? Um, and it will, uh, and it's everything from journaling. It involves um, it involves meditation. It involves um, you know working with your hands and and 
putting things together. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically, that's basically that it. That sounds wonderful. So if someone's thinking, oh, I'm not artistic, it's really, you don't have to be. It's more almost like it's guided play and guided creativity. And um, Absolutely. we all have that, by the way. We all have that creativity in us. Uh, sometimes all we need is a little bit of stillness and an invitation to tap into it. And, and that's what you're offering there. I love it. So yeah. you've done something wonderful for our Bubble Hour listeners, and that's uh, the creation of the code BUBBLE, uh, capital letters, B-U-B-B-L-E, at checkout. And um, you're giving $10 off the Storybox purchase for our listeners. So thank you for that. That's completely wonderful. And oh, um, I'm really excited. Your website is beautiful. And um, Oh, thank you. There's more of your your story is on your website as well, and um, uh, yeah, and the invitation to share stories and I love it. I I love that you're doing that, and um, I just want to thank you for for sharing your story with us today. Um, I could keep you on for another hour because I just I have so many questions. So you're gonna have to come back, I think, in a few months, and and we'll talk more about some topical stuff because I you know you've really You've been through so much. Um, we've we've done shows on adult children of alcoholics. We've done shows on codependence. We've done shows on religion. And and you know what? I think this is our first show about coming out. But every show we do is really about the same thing, which is about undoing the knots in our life and putting it back together in a way that works for us. And and um, you really. I, I love that by the time you went to treatment, you didn't even really realize that that's what you were there for. <laughs> <laughs> right. You had so much else going on. So there's so much to talk about. And I'm, you know, you're in a good place right now. I can, I can feel that in you. And I'm just so grateful that you not only got yourself there, but that you're sharing it with other women and other people, men and women, just to open up those channels of communications and throw shame out the window and, and celebrate truth and authenticity. And I just, I wonder, I guess two things in just the last few minutes before we go, um, I wrote down a million questions, but the one I really want you to answer right now is that, um, you know, after um, going back to six weeks after you were married the first time and you had been raped and the family member said to you, you've got to put it behind you and go forward. And that was the advice they gave you at that time. What I wonder is if you could go back in time and talk to 18-year-old Lisa at that moment, what would be the advice you would give to her? I would tell her it wasn't her fault. I would absolutely look at her and tell her, this is not your fault. Nothing you did made you deserve this. No decision that you made, the decision to marry, um, that even a poor decision doesn't give someone else the right to do what he did. Yeah. Okay, well, you just made me cry, so good question, Jean. Um, Sorry. Lastly, before you, before we say goodbye, I just wonder if you have any 
words for anyone that's listening that a lot of our listeners are listening because they are in the contemplation stage of change. Um, sometimes because it's because they're contemplating giving up drinking and sometimes it's people that have been in recovery for a while that are, you know, contemplating the next change, whatever that is in their life. And so I just, I wonder what words of encouragement you have for someone in that position today. Um, I think I would say one of the most valuable things that I've learned is how to be present, to truly take things one day at a time. And I mean, it sounds sounds like that, you know, a cliche and sounds oh so easy, but if if you can just think about today and making the next right choice, doing the next right thing, it's amazing how doing the next right thing leads to the next right thing and how a day becomes a week, a week becomes a month. And that, and then that month turns into a year and then it turns into three and a half years. Yeah. Um, don't, don't try to figure it all out. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to figure everything out in the beginning. Just be present in that day and, with each decision, just try to do the next right thing, and you'll be surprised where it'll take you. Okay, well, with those wise words, I think we will end today's show. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for being here and sharing your story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I've been talking with Lisa Schmidt of thesoberhipster.com. You can reach Lisa through her website. Um, Also, you can email me, uh, thebubblehour at gmail.com, if there's anything you'd like me to pass on to Lisa for you. Um, This show, let's see, where is our blog? Our website right now has been moved over to Blog Talk Radio. So the Bubble Hour is at blogtalkradio.com slash bubblehour. You can find all of our catalog of over 200 episodes there. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, from both Lisa and myself, uh, thanks for listening and take good care.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.